0: I'm here with David Minton today, and without a protracted introduction of his expertise, his knowledge and experience, I'll just jump into uh, a self-introduction allowance and ask you, Dave, to introduce yourself. What do you do? What's your educational background and how long have you been doing what you do?
1: Certainly. Um, well, I'm. I'm uh, first of all, thank you for having me. Um, I am a... Special Assistant Attorney General with the Mississippi Attorney General's Office. I currently advise the Department of Education here in Mississippi, meaning uh, I essentially act as general counsel for the educational agency of Mississippi. Um, I have been in this role for just in, right at two years. Um, previous to that, I was in private practice um, as a just general litigator. Um, with emphasis in uh, domestic, uh, what we call chancery court matters here in Mississippi, uh, as well as um, some personal injury litigation, um, I guess, expertise. Uh, I've been practicing law now for 11 years. Uh, My educational background is I attended the, the University of Mississippi School of Law. Uh, which you are quite aware of, and um, for for your students that don't know, Dietrich and I were at law school together uh, at the same time, and uh, where our friendship blossomed, originated and blossomed. I also, so I hold a Juris Doctorate from the University of Mississippi, Ole Miss, and I also hold two Bachelors of Business Administration from the University of Mississippi as well, Um, class of 2005 there, class of 2009 with the J.D., uh my bachelor's of business administrations are in uh emphasis in uh managerial finance and banking and finance so i I hold those two degrees uh, of which i really don't do anything with in my life but it is what it is um prior to law school so in between undergraduate and law school i i worked for a for the mcallister's delhi corporation which at that time was based here uh, where I am in Jackson, Mississippi, and uh, served as a kind of a franchise liaison for the corporate office to its numerous uh, franchise locations across the southeast, uh, you know, as far west as Od- Odessa, Midland, Texas, and as far east as Winston-Salem, North Carolina at that time was kind of their footprint. And so that's a, a little bit of my background and, uh, and who I am
0: currently in life. And fortunately, you were able to spend some time in Texas, which allowed you to tolerate uh, on some some level uh, the personalities of your Texas classmates, such as myself. Uh, when we came to Mississippi with our cowboy boots and arrogant attitudes, you said, you know, I've encountered this before. Uh, I'm not just going to throw you out of my state just yet. So, that-
1: uh, well, you are, uh, of course, uh, an eccentric breed if, if anything um and and yes my i guess my time uh served in texas uh did prepare me for the um for my experiences with dietrich of which i don't believe we're going to get into many of those uh today i don't believe this is the proper podcast uh well as you meant In our prep, we talked about whether or not there would need need to be an explicit tag on this episode, and uh, we can avoid that. However, there are definitely stories that can be told that would probably warrant such a a tag if we wanted to go down that road.
0: I do worry that some of these interviews are going to result in uh, students reaching out via LinkedIn and other sort of recommended mediums of exchange for networking and business contacts where uh, after asking you for some professional advice, uh, via your professional email or, or LinkedIn, there will be a, a slight segue where they tap into that euphemism for eccentric breed and say, um, "Tell me, tell me just one story. Can you give me one?" But well, well <laughs> as you know, we took a blood oath and our lips
1: are sealed. So
0: right, okay. <laughs> I feel safe. And that is one of the things that we cover in my classes is, is, is the idea of professional duties where certain responsibilities, even though you're an individual in certain capacities, you may have through your professional roles, through your licensure and so forth, certain restrictions. But before I delve into your legal uh, sort of practice, which I do think Will will discover some of the benefits that you discovered, even if not direct those indirect benefits of your undergraduate background where understanding certain insurance and finance and risk under uh, sort of aspects of your industry, you were able to add more value than your peers and But before we jump into that, one of the areas that I am interested in, particularly with our demographic of students and many generally many entry level professionals is this idea of moving for work of traveling for work and so I know that uh, both of us traveled after undergraduate uh, degrees for work and there's a certain glamor to it, but there are also uh, certain stressors. And so I do want to address, particularly for my students who are first gen college students, uh, whose parents maybe uh, immigrated to this country and and really didn't have jobs that allowed them to travel much, whether for for legal reasons, uh, through our legislative practices in the country or simply for professional reasons and, and financial reasons, they may not have that modeling. And and you traveled around the country uh, in a professional capacity. You were paid to do these things. And I wonder if generally you could tell us some stories about pros and cons, some of those benefits and pitfalls that you experienced, um, why people might want to accept a position that has a travel component, and why people, uh, depending on his or her respective personality, might want to avoid this sort of profession.
1: Certainly. Uh, we'll, we'll start with with the pros uh, column and which I personally believe there are a lot more pros, especially if you're someone who is not uh, tied down to a certain area uh, or uh, has a, a, has a desire to experience different people, different culture, different what, whatever it may be. Uh, those are definitive pros I, as Coming out of coming out of college, I I would have considered myself a fairly uh, introverted person, and so the opportunity to travel—excuse me—the opportunity to travel to various locations. Again, I I went went to Lansing, Michigan, uh, Winston-Salem, North Carolina, multiple spots in Texas, uh, here in Mississippi, Georgia, Alabama tennessee kentucky missouri a couple of times uh on these various uh, trips on behalf of the McAllister's, uh, McAllister's corporation um and would and would generally spend about two weeks in a in a in a, in a spot uh, and usually but not all the time but usually it would coincide with the opening of a new location by a franchise group um and we were there just primarily to be the face of the, of the franchise or the corporation, excuse me. So the pros of it all. And so something I would suggest someone consider if they are, whatever the job may be, whether it's a restaurant business or other sales or whatever it may be, um, is if you are of the type that enjoys meeting new people, uh, enjoys experiencing Uh, you know, different uh, locations, locales, and and the culture around those places, because, again, this is a a very diverse, even if we're just talking about staying within the borders of the United States, we're talking about an extremely diverse land uh, and diverse cultures within, within even states. Uh, You know, I live in a very small state in in Mississippi of less than 3 million people, And I can tell you that there are at least four distinct cultural areas in Mississippi alone. So even if, even if your geographic area that you're going to travel in is, is relatively small, there's still the opportunity to experience lots of different types of people. And I I believe that if you, the more you interact and experience other people and their ideas and their culture and their insights and, life experiences I personally think it makes you a a better well-rounded individual both in your personal and professional life Uh, and so I do credit um, that year plus of working for McAllister's and doing what I did and getting the opportunity to to experience different people as a as something that helped me grow out of that introvertness that I originally, that I originally referenced. Also in the more professional realm, you're going, if you're in that type of uh, job, if, 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 that, if you're, if you're moving around and traveling and, and experiencing experiencing all these different people, you're going to start experiencing different management methods. Um, in my, in my, to take it back to my personal experiences, you know, the individual's, the different franchise groups did uh, ran the business slightly differently. You know, each one ran it a little bit differently. Some of the bigger ones had a very rigid, um, very rigid ways they did things uh, within the the corporate model, and some of the smaller, uh, more
0: real quick though, Dave, you're, you're talking about the larger companies, but I do want to backtrack and just emphasize how important it is to recognize how, particularly in Mississippi, which is definitely smaller than Texas, we know Texas has just as many sort of demographics as Mississippi. Mississippi now has uh, very uh, large immigration numbers. You've got uh, demographics are much different than sort of the historical Mississippi that we studied about in school. But even within that, because it's smaller, there is a sort of tendency or, or propensity of two color or binary ethnic considerations. And then, of course, you have your general two or, or two issue or binary gender considerations or sex considerations, where you say, OK, there are men and women in this state, and typically there are white and blacks in this state. And then we've added these immigration standards. But as you're mentioning with the, the management distinctions, between the larger companies, I guess you're about to jump into some of the issues with the smaller uh, franchises and those distinctions of culture. Traveling allowed you maybe even in coming back to your current role where you're still interacting in a sense with some of the traditional, more binary uh, demographics that are Mississippi, maybe more so than a 254 county uh, Texas region or California with its very expansive demographic differences and economic differences and so forth, you were able to come back to the state aware when you interacted with somebody that you had previously seen on a superficial level as one identity. Now you see where, even if it's the same company, it is McAllister's. even though within that same company, a larger or smaller franchise might approach problem solving, risk management, financial strategy, particularly trying into your undergraduate background in a different way than a uh, differently sized positioned or geographically situated company. But anyway, I've interjected, so please please continue.
1: Uh, certainly. Well, what what I was basically was getting to was regardless of the size of uh, of the franchise and, and the success levels what I what I gleaned from my travels and my time was there is no one perfect way to handle people, to inter- interact with, with your employees and or your peers uh, that, that you can and that you should be willing to glean from, ver- from various different um, techniques to kind of formulate your own style and uh, of, of, of managing people and are, and are just interacting with people on a day-to-day basis. Um, and and so as I was alluding to is we had the had very successful, very, very large, successful franchise groups that handled things one way and smaller groups that were fledgling in some cases, one or two stores, uh, maybe, maybe first stores that were trying to learn, you know, figure out their way. Um, but I was able to, to pull things from from both aspects, both ends of that spectrum, um, and so that's that's a benefit of this is when when you're interacting, uh, being this you know in a in a uh, profession where you're traveling and interacting with different people on a weekly, monthly, whatever it may be, daily basis, you'll you'll get an opportunity. You get an opportunity to pull things from different styles. Whereas if if you're in a regi- if you're in a insular field where you're basically seeing the same people every day. Um, you can become stagnant in that environment. Whereas when you are experiencing new people on, on a fairly consistent basis, you're not going, stagnation stagnation's not gonna set in. You're going to continually learn and, and, and adapt to new situations because you will be dealing with new people uh, as I was at that time, on a biweekly basis, every two weeks I was in another city, another state, another region, whatever it may be, dealing with a, a completely different group of people, different different styles, different population bases. Um, for example, you know, in Texas, there was a, a, a large Hispanic population, obviously, that yeah, especially in the in the workforce, um, whereas as you were mentioning in Mississippi, the few times I would open a store in Mississippi, I was primarily dealing with uh, uh, Caucasian and African-American communities uh, in the workforce. And, and a lot of the workforce at those stores were uh, teenagers, whereas maybe in uh, a Midland or an Odessa or in Cyprus, uh, Texas or Lubbock, there would be a, a larger percentage of, uh, of an older, employee base doing the, you know, as the, as the core workforce, uh, because of the, just the demographic basis of that population area. Um, So you were dealing with uh, sometimes older individuals that you were their boss, quote unquote, their boss, but they were older than you, uh, maybe had experience on you, obviously different life experiences. Um, So you had to learn how to, you know, pull from different aspects to learn how to manage those individuals. Uh, and I always felt that the fact that I was never in that time period, never in one spot for more than a couple weeks, uh, it allowed me to be able to interact and, and now in my new position, but be able to interact with people on a, uh, on a varying basis. Because at the end of the day, none of us, even, even with our own demographics, none of us are the same. Um, and so we all are, have our own individual personality. So those are some of the positives I would take uh, from from it is just the ability when you're tra- if you are in a professional that allows you or requires you to travel, uh, and it is interaction with varying personalities, cultures, demographics, etc, are going to allow you to, I believe, expand upon your own Horizons. Whereas, if if you were if you were you know limited to like a cubicle in an office, your interactions are limited to those individuals that you see on a daily basis. And 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 again, I go back to that term stagnation. You can become stagnant in your job, and and whereas where you don't adapt, where you don't grow as an employee uh, and or employer for that matter, uh, when you are only dealing with like-minded similar individuals on almost on a consistent basis now you also asked about negatives and what i can say about that is i am i can i am a very schedule based person Um, i like things planned out and i don't like being surprised um, and unfortunately life always has surprises. Um, but I would say to someone who is considering a profession, even if it's entry level, uh, in something that involves, uh, spontaneous planning, travel, um, uh, last minute changes of plan that, but they, but they can't handle that then it's not, that's a negative and it's something that you might not want to get into. And however, speaking of my own experiences, you know, when I was doing what I was doing for McAllister's, we would have a plan of what uh, stores were opening, but things could change at the drop of a hat. Um, Construction could have been backed up because of weather. So the store's not ready to be opened. Uh, They might not have the staff hired. So there's always that possibility that, you know, on a Thursday when I, or a Saturday morning, when I'm gearing up to leave for my next spot where I'm supposed to be in 48 hours, I might get the phone call that says, Hey, you're no, you're no longer going to uh, the suburb of Atlanta. You're going to Panama city beach or whatever, uh, just to use an example. And so you have to be willing. I had to learn me personally. I had to learn that, Hey, things can't be just set in stone that, and it took a, it took a minute for me and I I still, I still struggle with that, that, you know, when things change suddenly on you. So if you're someone who has that same issue, this type, that type of work, that type of whether it's entry level or higher up is something that you will have to adapt to. And so it can, that could be a pro or a con there because you can either, you'll either learn to adapt to it, which will make you a, much more better, well-rounded individual, just personally, as well as professionally, or you won't be able to adapt to it and you will not succeed at that job. Uh, so that's really the primary negative I could think of from my personal experiences as a, as a traveling professional um, more so than, uh, than any, really can't think of anything else that I, that I could draw on as a negative. Uh, when I look back at my year plus of of doing that that work uh, I look primarily back on it fondly Um, it it was and again it I believe it prepared me when it came to that character development and learning how uh, to adjust on the fly as well as interact with individuals of different beliefs different cultural backgrounds uh, racial backgrounds etc. Uh, and, and, and work together with those individuals, uh, that's a year that I, I, that I wouldn't replace.
0: And some of that is, I mean, and we've talked about this before, just that maturation, right? So, uh, of course, sure. uh, many of my students and our, our university's alumni are non-traditional students, which means that their EEOC sort of classifications may not be exactly the statistical demographics or breakdown that you would see at Ole Miss or at uh, USC or some other university. And so we've got the older students who may have to weigh taking a position that requires more travel and spontaneity against what we didn't have to sort of balance our factors against at that time, which include spouses and children. So um, those I I think would come into play as far as spontaneous planning and scheduling and and expenses for sure.
1: Oh, definitely. I mean, that's, you know, again, you know, looking I was 23 years old and um, and, you know, didn't have a lease, didn't have a mortgage, uh, you know. And so I, I had that freedom of of not having to um, to worry, you know, to to worry about, you know, when's the next time I'll see my kids or um, or, you know, and having all of that to me, it was it was a, it was a grand adventure. Uh, you know, oh, I'm, I'm getting paid to go places I've never been. Uh, and so those type of considerations, uh, you know, didn't impact me personally at that time. But now, you know, if I was, uh, you know, in a different, in a di- I'm in a different mindset. I'm 38 going on 39. i have two wonderful, uh, you know, married, happily married, I have two wonderful children. And I couldn't fathom um, having a job that required me to be away weeks on end. Um, and but uh, the the recognition there is that that uh, that some people even at that stage in their lives w- may enjoy that type of work, um, and so yeah, that, that's a definite consideration as well that I that I hadn't thought of until you mentioned that uh, your the demographics of your students that you know the place you are in life does dictate what may be a negative uh, and what may be a positive. In that uh, that realm of a of a professional journey,
0: and and I will say, that you're Thank you me. and you and your wife are lovely people. So that's a little different. I'm sure if I was married to somebody who was considering traveling for weeks on end, um, there would be a, a gleeful acceptance of the position and requests for extended uh, terms away. So uh, do I have to go home, back not home to sure. Professor von Biedenfeld? Please, God, no. Uh, so I I, I definitely <laughs> think uh, depending on <laughs> depending on Abbey home. There, there might still be some excuses to appreciate being away. But I do think a lot of what you've mentioned, again, those ideas of, of foundational uh, diversity appreciation where you look at people and say, this person is like me and suddenly you discover that superficially they might be, but their character isn't. And conversely, um, maybe where you went out to um, a community, particularly in, in Texas, maybe with one of our Latino or Hispanic communities and saying, hey, um, these people aren't like me. They speak a different language. This is not our typical Mississippi community, but then discovered a lot of similar cultural values that you have, um, that I know personally, you have a strong work ethic, that you have a a strong integrity and belief in sort of um, right and wrong, where you discover that this demographic is very different than what you're sort of, uh, you've grown up with or what you're inculturated with, but that their core values, at least as far as work ethic and integrity, are so similar. And so, just I, I think that awakening helps that maturation where you step out of your comfort zone and say, you know, I'm not going to, to use the, the typical phrase, I'm not going to judge this, this book by a cover or any subsequent book by a cover because I have this experience with a community where the person who looked like me didn't have my same values or beliefs, and the person who did not look like me, sound like me, um, or communicate as I do um, have a different value. Of course, you know, another thing, and I don't think we have enough time in this discussion to really delve into it. One of the challenges that, that we have is delving into some of the, the challenges that you and I face in our, in our age group where um, we have to interact with people in a, in a challenging environment. We, we mentioned how some people are, look the same but are different. In our age group, we might have been brought up with the same music as our peers or the same clothing as our peers. But with older parents, with older um, sort of influences and and with more traditional values, it could be challenging to sort of interact with others of our same generation technically because our values are different. And, and so some of these EEOC things that we encounter where we might encounter somebody, you mentioned encountering older workforce and in our generation, um, you might say, everybody, spend for yourself, we're all equal, there's no hierarchy, but because of our parental training, because of our enculturation, we want to open the door. Or if it's uh, an older man or woman, we might say miss or mister before their first name. And that could cause someone offense. And so that maturation and these experiences where sometimes you, you encounter it, and I've encountered it a few times, where I get in trouble for something that I think 99% of people would find to be a form of respect or of my own good home training, suddenly in a certain environment, in a certain workforce, someone took offense to my holding a door um, for a person or for offering assistance or calling somebody Mr. or Miss in front of their first name. Instead of being offended because of that demographic exposure that you referenced with your Macalester's experience, I was able to step back and say, you know what? I don't necessarily agree, but I respect that you're different and I did not do this out of a mean-spirited direction. I didn't do this out of malice. This is how I was raised. You know, and of course you and I are going to say, because we were raised better than you. Well,
1: I wouldn't say that, but I'm not quite as, uh, as, as, uh, as, as verbose and uh, <laughs> in your face as Professor von Biedenfeld can, can be, but um, it would might definitely run through my mind, but. But no, you're right. It again, it it goes back to that that, that core idea of you know, inter interacting with. I, I think there's there you know, and this, this doesn't really jive with what we're talking about. But part of I think growth as as a person and or as a professional is about placing yourself into into uncomfortable situations from time to time, and and, 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 and sometimes just interacting with other people that are different than you, whether it's because they look different, speak different, pray to a different God, pray to no God, whatever it may be, those are instances where you can, you can further develop yourself by placing yourself into those uncomfortable situations, maybe not intentionally, uh, as you're mentioning, opening, holding the door for someone out of out of respect and or politeness that they take offense to. Well, you weren't intending to do anything but hold the door, uh, but you placed yourself into an uncomfortable situation unintentionally, but you can learn from that, that situation um, and, and, and interaction. And so that all goes to say, you know, again, we're, we're talking about a situation where you can grow uh, by having these interactions that you might not otherwise have an opportunity to have. I, I can honestly say, had I not done what I did uh, with the McAllister Corporation, I, I wouldn't have had the opportunity to have interactions with in, individuals way out in the Permian Basin. Um, and I wouldn't I wouldn't know what RO water is. <laughs> so, so um, and... And you, you can grow and it's going to make you a more well-rounded professional, no matter what your what field you're in, it's going to help you become a more well-rounded professional when you, the more, the more diverse interactions you have with individuals, because you're going to understand people better. And as you're saying, you know, at the, even though we're, we may all have differences at at our core, I think most people are very similar. Um, And, but it's a matter of peeling back that onion and seeing the layers you know and and finding that common ground and then working and then using that common ground for the betterment of, of whatever industry you're in or whatever your your goal is in whatever team you might be part of uh, in my case it was you know let's make this let's make this restaurant successful um, and maybe I don't understand. And, and again, in Texas, there was a lot of language barrier. Uh, I, I'll really admit there was a lot of language barrier. Uh, we, we, especially in the more, you know, out there way out West and, and in the panhandle, there was a lot of one in the, a lot of the kitchen staff usually was, as you're mentioning, uh, immigrant workers and or first generation, um, that, spoke a little bit of English, but not very much. And usually there'd be one individual there, maybe two that could, you know, serve as the bridge. And those were, you know, but again, that's a life experience that I I've had where that a lot of people don't get to where I, we had to work through those, those type of, uh, um, hindrances and, and, to, uh, to, for the betterment of the, of, the, of the company and or the betterment of that franchise to make sure it was going to be successful. And so, but again, at, at the end of the day, they wanted to do a good job. I wanted them to do a good job. And we found a way through that uh, on many occasions. Um, and so, I, I, again, it, it goes back to these diverse interactions, growth as a person, diverse interactions, uncomfortable situations, and uncomfortable and, and doesn't have to mean painful, just outside of your comfort level. But I think everyone should have those type of inter- have those those type of interactions, those experiences in life, or else again, and I, I go back to that concept of you're, you're just going to become stagnant as a person, not and not just as a professional, if you're unwilling to step out of your comfort zone from time to time. Um, and, and we could get into a much deeper philosoph- philosophical conversation about, you know, the state of our country right now, because a lot of people don't want to have these uncomfortable conversations and uncomfortable experiences with people that they perceive to be different from them, whether it's political, religious, whatever. Uh, but that's not why we're here today. That's, a, that's another podcast.
0: So. Right. <laughs> and I, but I think the lessons uh, apropos, and because as you, as you mentioned, We do know that if we don't discuss these things, if we don't put ourselves sometimes in a position of discomfort, then the issues fester, right? And we just think analogously of mold in a house, right? If you never tear back the wall to look, you could get some sort of uh, terminal condition related to a a, a sort of occurrence that you have no knowledge of because you never peeled back the layers. You never looked under the surface to see the mold or, or the carcinogens or whatever that were going on. And you also referenced the language, and I think this is probably something that has helped you excel in your profession. Which is, as you encountered people who maybe spoke Spanish as a first language versus um, our, our version of English, right? We don't we don't put things in a boot or take a lift, but
1: it's American. You know, uh, <laughs> it's American,
0: right? We speak American we speak English, American. So, so this is a nice um, tip of the hat to Kevin Kevin Blair Garrison. Um, we we speak our, our American English and, and say. Uh, things a certain way in your profession, you've probably experienced additional success because you recognize that that language, not only of, of sort of your linguistical vernacular of, of your country of origin or national origin, but also your professions, right? And, and so we talk about this in my classes where we talk about acronyms, where we talk about um, how different people in different industries might phrase things. And, and the first time you heard someone in Louisiana going to make groceries and you were like, what, is this a dish? Is this, groceries is a type of cake? Oh, you're going to purchase groceries. Um, you're not actually going to create them. Uh, you're going to, but, but these, these slight vernacular nuances, right? Where we, we have to do that, maybe to some degree you've experienced uh, greater adaptability and, and greater cognizance of those distinctions because of that initial exposure to people literally speaking a different language than you and then being able to apply that in industry emails and emails with your colleagues because you interface in your role with the attorney general's office with people who are not lawyers
1: yes well I, you know and and, and and that's interesting you bringing up like acronyms and, and uh, you know and, and, and things of that nature so just kind of spin it forward when i went When I made the switch from private practice to AG's office, especially in the realm of education law, I I basically had to learn a new language. There are so many things that I had never heard of: uh, the ESSA, IDEA, um, FERPA. You know, just the name you're probably very familiar with FERPA being an (laughs) educator. But um, these things that when I was in private practice weren't part of my everyday not even every day, every year vernacular, because I didn't run in those circles. But, but the, and I was hired as someone to go to the Department of Education with no educational law background. And, but yes, I I think, you know, those challenges, if you want to call them that challenges, uh, experiences uh, of having to kind of adapt on the fly that I referenced earlier, whether it be adapting my schedule, my travel schedule, or adapting how I'm going to train this one individual who maybe doesn't understand it this way, but I'm going to try to teach them this way. That adaptability, that kind of was fostered in that that short time period that I was with McAllister's, uh, allowed me to, I won't say hit the ground running, but to quickly come up, get to speed. Um, with my new position, with my new, my new requirements of, of being able to say, okay, I understand what you're talking about uh, when you start talking about the Every Student Succeeds Act or the IDEA or whatever it may be. And, and, and I mean, I still have cheat sheets of these acronyms so that I can always reference them. But um, but you know, I, I, I can honestly say, had I, had I n- maybe not had those experiences back now. I mean, 15 years ago, yeah, yeah, 15 years ago, um, that I may not have been able to adapt as quickly as I did from, you know, a very broad private practice uh, to a very specialized public service practice uh, in the in the very short period that I did. So, you know, you're you're dead on when you talk about that. that Though that those experiences, bleeding even 15 years later, when I'm doing something that is nothing in the realm uh, of semblance to what I was doing when I was traveling around, across the southeast teaching people how to make sandwiches, uh, but it those those lessons that I learned at that point are still applying today, even though I'm in a completely different profession, a completely different realm of you know uh, and a completely different part of my life those those li- those life lessons because that's what they were those life lessons still apply
0: and we may have to do a follow up because I do think there are a number of business lessons with regard to the value of consistency right so you were sent out there as a corporate representative to ensure these sort of satellite franchises were exercising that vision and we've seen this with a number of global corporate leaders with billions of dollars in stock returns where that vision whether it be customer service first, whether it be the long-term strategy first, that vision has to be translated to the lowest common denominator. And again, I know in our, in our current generation, I shouldn't use that phrase. I should use something like the everybody or something. I should use something more PC, but oh, well I won't. Um, but you know, from the pawn to the King, there has to be a unified strategy uh, on your chessboard um, from the private to the general, there has to be a uniform strategy to your, uh, sort of military direction and the same thing in corporations but I do want to hit on a couple of things and and you can touch on this however, however you think best or integrate it um, and, and reorder it however you think is most effective but I do wonder in your choice to go to law school after this corporate uh, sort of venture we will have alumni and, and first uh, sort of level professionals who are considering grad school considering, law school, med school, PhDs, whatnot, you know, what, what were some of the determining factors for you in making that choice? And then also, as you transitioned into these professions, I know networking is a huge thing. When you transitioned this job, you were, I think, wise enough to reach out to your colleagues and friends in different industries to say, hey, what tools can I, can I use to best um, and optimally engage in this new profession to hit the ground running, as you say? So you had those networks, but were there other tools or practices that you used like learning a new language or something along those lines that helped you that could be advice for uh, people entering new professions? So I don't know if you want to address the law school thing or the uh, new profession or tra- pro- you know professional transition comment first, but like, why did you go to law school? And then also as you as you picked new professions, what did you do to, to be most successful in them?
1: Okay. Well, with, I'll, I'll start uh, with the, the why, uh, why I went. Into, well, I had, and I'll just, be, I'll be, you know, very candid. And, and of course, you know, my background, I, I was always going to law school. Um, and so the choice of uh, of taking a year or however many, whatever amount of time it would have eventually taken, it was just a year um, was a personal choice. I felt I needed, um, after undergraduate, I felt I needed some time away from the books. Um, and uh, it was never 100 uh, percent my intention to return to Ole Miss for law school. I, uh, But I uh, but it, that's where I ended back up uh, again, due to a per, just personal choices and where I was in life. But so law school, even before McAllister's was always something on the horizon. It was just a matter of when, not if. Um, and so the uh, experiences uh, uh, that I had in the, in the, the, the corporate world, I, I can honestly say really didn't mold that decision-making process. It was more of a, a timing thing, maybe a timing thing. I think, you know, I, can, I could honestly say I was ready to go back when I did that year and a half or so after I was done with, uh, done with my undergraduate studies and uh, moving into the, um, getting back to Oxford and going, going to law school. Uh, On your second point, I think one of the things that in terms of that we can, that, that people should never be afraid to learn from, or should never be afraid to do is, I think you have to look at no matter where you are in your professional life, whether you're entry level or you're the CEO of a company, I think you always have to kind of look at things as, in my opinion, you should always look at things as, as, as a team. And in this regard, my regard of going from private practice to public practice with this very specialized language, very specialized areas of law, uh, that very, especially here in Mississippi, that very few people practice, you, I couldn't be afraid to, to ask. For assistance, and and that's something that again uh, another thing that you know I, I I take back from my time at McAllisters and you know even going backwards um, through undergrad is everyone needs you shouldn't be afraid to ask somebody if you don't understand something um, it doesn't make you look less intelligent it in fact I believe it makes you look more intelligent when you can recognize that you might need uh, someone else's point of view to understand something. And so especially when you're entering into something that you're just not familiar with. Uh, and so to kind of connect those two points of that time between law, uh, undergrad and law school and, and, and now and my current, uh, my current position is you know, when I was at when I was running these these openings and and doing the corporate um, face man job for McAllister's, it was you know we we always wanted to make the franchise groups comfortable. So we always wanted to. And while you're you know, while you're true, while it's true that hey, corporate America wants consistency, it, whether it's franchise groups or corporate owned stores, whatever. You know, we want to walk in. To we'll just use McAllisters as an example. When I go to a McAllisters in Plano, Texas, or I go to a McAllisters in Lakeland, Florida, and I order a club sandwich, I want that club sandwich to be the same in both places. So that's you know the that's the point of the 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 corporate model and the especially in restaurants and the franchise. We we want you to have the same experience especially taste bud wise and or when you go into a a a corporate store we want you know you to feel the same whenever you go into a lowe's or a home depot we want it to be a familiarity there um etc but as i mentioned earlier not everyone has the same skill set and management style um and so i would always go into these stores whether it be with a very large company franchise group there in Texas, there's a group called uh, Saxon Pierce. They, they have like a hundred and something McAllister's they've been rolling for years. And then there's other places that might only have one or two stores or three stores, or this might be their first store. And I always wanted to sit down with the managers that were going to be there after I left and say, you know, tell me how y'all want to run this place. How How do you plan to run this place so that I can help, install that for them and so to me that's the same the same idea of asking questions when you don't understand something I was I, I was willing I'm always I'm willing to ask those questions of well, how do you want this done yes you're going to make this club sandwich this way but how are you going to manage these people what's the what's the protocol you want to set what's the tone of this store in terms of the employees going to be um, so that I can can mimic that to the best of my ability to help you be successful. And spending that ahead 15 years or so when I joined the AG's office, the first thing I did with my now, uh, he's no longer my lead attorney, but the, the, the gentleman that hired me, is I sat down with him and I was like, explain the nuances of this facility and we are stationed at the Department of Education, so we're there in the building with the the agency. Whereas a lot of the AGs are not that help help other state agencies. We're in the building. We we interact with our client on a daily basis. We have Facetime with our client on a daily basis. Um, well, not these days, but you know, right? <laughs> so, but, and so I wanted to know. What is this place like on a day to day basis? What are the nuances of this place? And what do I need to know to be successful in this job? What where where do I need to where do I need to educate myself so that when I am having a conversation with the state superintendent of education or one of her chiefs of staff or or just even somebody, you know, way down the so the quote unquote totem pole of the agency so that I know that they know I know what I'm what I'm trying to communicate and talk about, so that we're all working toward one goal and we're all comfortable with one another. And so I, I think that's just a long-winded way of saying, you know, do you no matter where you are in the in, in the in the in the so-called pecking order of a business, whether you're the boss or you're the new hire, you should always be willing to interact and work with your coworkers, whether they're under you or above you to for the betterment of the company and for the betterment of yourself um to help it, to help it succeed and and so again like i said spinning it forward to today i, I wasn't i wasn't that I, I i was in undergrad i was a i got this kind of guy i don't need help i i i hated business school because business school was all team stuff and i was a i was a no i'm going to do this on my own even when it was a class about teams and and or you know our group projects and 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 looking back now i recognize that the reason why those classes were formulated that way is because that's what the real world is um but I, I, I can honestly say that, you know, even though I have I learned more in that one year, one pl- year plus of how to actually be a good teammate uh, in the business world in that year, year plus with McAllister's Deli Corporation, which I have now, of course, have you know spun into my legal practice than I did in, in the three And a half years of undergrad in a business school that was that I was paying for (laughs) that was geared toward teaching me how to to be a teammate in the corporate world. Um, So, again, long winded way of saying don't be afraid to be a teammate and but don't be afraid to ask questions, because that's where you get your knowledge from. And that's how you excel. That's how you make your. Your team, and I'll use that term again, your your team better is. By by being informed and 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 asking the right questions instead of trying to do it on your own where you might miss something and and then you fail and if you fail that's an impact on the company the client in my case the client um, and and so don't be that person is I guess what I'm trying to say and I, I, I'm, I I'm like I said that's a long winded way of saying. Ask questions, and again, even if you're the boss, you might not know what's going on. I mean, you're perceived to be the expert when you're the you're the CEO of a company or the or the head of a department. You're perceived to be the expert, but you may not be an expert. You may not know what how things happen in this realm, this realm, this realm, because you may have come from up, up another realm. So, no matter how high you get in in, in the in the corporate pecking order it's always good to know how things are operating and, and asking questions of, of those under you so that you are informed and can make the the best decisions at possible. And then from the bottom up, it's the more you learn, the better you can do to your job and the, and, in in a and to bring it into a kind of a selfish way, you then stand out and can make, your move up the corporate ladder or the business ladder, or whatever it may be, um, by, by impressing your superiors and showing and showing them that you have that foresight and that drive to, to be as informed as you possibly can be to help the company or the law firm or the agency or whatever realm of work you're in, um, I think that answered your question. I'm, Absolutely, I'm no, and
0: there. don't worry about being long-winded because my students know that we are trained to get paid by the word, so um, these are all <laughs> the words, and we'll be mailing an envelope with an invoice to all the listeners uh, following the show. I, I think, a, yeah, I think a 450 billable uh, hour rate is fair, and, um, you know, we'll do 15-minute 15, 15 billable increments, but but I also think you, you raised a great point with the idea... 10 minutes,
1: and t- it was 10 minutes in my world. <laughs> 10 minutes.
0: Okay. Okay. Yeah. Well, your time is worth more because you are a better lawyer than I am. So <laughs> oh, I doubt that. No. So with, within that though, I mean, you raised a valuable point about how there's a selfish benefit, right? Even in altruism of doing the best job for your company of asking questions so that you can best perform your role within that uh, company or industry there's still a selfish benefit. In the course of my classes, I emphasize that pragmatic ethics value, right? And we talked about the differences of faiths or non-faiths and the idea that even if you, you don't believe that there's a higher power that's going to punish you for bad acts uh, upon your, your death, um, recognize that there could be fines or, or criminal penalties for those bad acts on earth, right? So those pragmatic ethics and those pragmatic benefits or positive consequences of being willing, as you mentioned, to ask questions, to do that. But also, um, not to be morbid, but I, I remember having this argument with my mother, uh, oftentimes when I would pick classes where she would tell me, don't take the professor, take the class. Don't t- You're not taking the teacher, you're taking the class. And I have to contradict her, right? You are taking the person because of exactly mm-hmm. the things that you mentioned. So I wonder, in in that distinction that I'm always trying to draw where we try to find similar and dissimilar elements of managing projects versus managing people, you seemingly found that managing people is still an integral part of managing projects, whether that be making sandwiches or delivering um, sort of uh, an advisory opinion to a state agency. And so how it then, we've talked about diversity, we've talked about Uh, balancing factors. We talked about understanding yourself, that introspective analysis of your own personal skills, strengths and weaknesses. Um, Within that, do you see any differences of managing projects versus managing people or a way that in managing projects, you can distinguish from a corollary necessity of managing people?
1: You'll have to repeat that question. I lost you for just a, br- a brief right, moment. Right, that's there. too
0: many words. So they, but within that, so we're, <laughs> we're managing, pro- so you're managing the project, you're telling people you're going to make a club sandwich and you want three pieces of bacon at the McAllister's in Midland. You want three pieces of bacon on it in Jackson, Mississippi. But each of the, the, the stakeholders is is distinct from the other and how they get it done, right? And so your point about making sure that the uh, CEO at least generally understands what the role of their subordinate people are and listens. So again, even in that hierarchy, the listening element to make sure that when you're talking to your stakeholder, I don't know, maybe maybe you've, you're opening McAllister's in Israel and they don't want any bacon on the club sandwich, right? <laughs> Leave the ham and the bacon off. Um, and if you're the CEO and you're just top-down, uniformity, consistency, you miss that. And you open the most unsuccessful club sandwich maker in the world in Jerusalem or Tel Aviv because you didn't listen to the people on the ground that said, uh, Do you have halal or kosher bacon? No, then we don't want it for our sandwiches. Um, And so, so again, just that idea, some of the lessons you've had for managing project with people and I'll interject without giving away any proprietary information so you can share more or less of this, um, depending on what's available we discussed some of the challenges that you had in your new job with some of the protocols, practices, policies, and so forth, where you have entities that can interact with with a funding agency, for example, without the same level of controls you might expect in a private sector entity. But you're not in a position, you're not the the governor, um, you're not the president, so you can't say, this is what we're gonna do differently, so you're in this the sort of mill ground where you're a- able to offer expert advice. You're an expert in, in in these legal matters. You're a subject matter expert with a background with finance and insurance and risk, and yet you still have to interface within this organization. You still have to manage the project to ensure that your client's best interests are protected, while managing the people who may say, "We've always done it this way. Why are you coming in here and trying to change it?" So I mean. What, it's, it's a lot of things rolled into this, I know, but um, so feel free to just brainstorm and, and share some of the, the general anecdotes and lessons that you have from these work experiences where managing projects and people either aligned or didn't align.
1: Well, I'm, I'm trying to think of the best way to answer the question um, in a succinct way. Um, those that aren't aware the you know coming from all right so we'll we'll go this way coming from a private law background private legal background i essentially was um king of my own castle I, i was with a firm but i ran my own book for lack of a better way of putting it my cases were my cases my clients were my clients we didn't we didn't have shared clients uh, amongst the, the other attorneys in the office. Uh, so, and my caseload was my caseload to manage as I chose to manage it within the realm of professional responsibility, of course. Right. Um, going into the public sector, uh, and you, you alluded to this, there are, uh, as I'm sure is in, in, same in Texas, in Mississippi, we have uh, lots of uh, regulations on how our agencies have to act, how they can, they can, um, for example, in pre- the procurement realm, especially how they have to, um, you know, how they have to advertise for jobs and or services they need or goods they need and how many quotes they have to get, et cetera, and all that. We won't get into that minutia. And It it was a there that wasn't an abrupt change for me and and the other part of that that was different was there was now these layers uh, that I I never had to really deal with Um, we call it bureaucracy (laughs) where you are your things have to go through a certain chain and everybody's got to check a box and um, and so there became a there there was a point and and as it became to managing people that my client my specific program office clients within the department of education had been um handheld for quite a a long time whereas i came in and said look i'm 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 i don't have any mandate over you i'm not i'm not y'all's boss what i say does not go my job here is to advise you and counsel you on whether or not what you're doing is 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 quote unquote legal and uh make sure that you're 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 not towing the line uh in the gray area to where uh the agency will get in trouble and it took a long time uh and and of Interaction with those different program offices and we're talking about, you know, program offices that didn't all necessarily do anything similar to each other like uh, procurement, you know, all they care about is buying stuff and then elementary ed, all you know, they they have their jobs and and assessments had their jobs, have their jobs, etc, where you're but you but my experiences in the management world. From years ago, uh, I think, I want to believe, helped me in kind of easing myself into this role of away from, hey, you can't do that, which was what they were used to, to somewhat uh, more of a role of, here's how you should be doing it. This is the proper way under the law. Here's what you are allowed to do under the law. Um, You you don't and, and 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 an understanding and a, a trust build up over built up over time to where for example uh and i'll use one one example like uh, i have um y'all have a, a the client come to me and ask hey we are um we have this bid out for widgets which for those that don't know that's the universal law school term for whatever product you're trying to sell a universal procurement Um, yeah yes so we we have a bid out for widgets and we don't think this vendor this vendor's got a really good bid but we don't think they necessarily met um the strictly complied with our uh you know our bid form um our our proposal request do we have to throw this out? And unfortunately, here comes the, the lawyer answer that we always get, well, it depends. And it took a long time for them to finally understand that when I was telling them it depends, I was giving them options of saying, look, I can find a way if, if, if you decide to throw this out, if you, if you decide this, 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 this proposal wasn't in strict compliance with your request for proposals, So they would get these options and and what they didn't understand was I was giving them options. I wasn't giving them a mandate that you have to do this or you have to do that. It would be, hey, look, I can look at this request for proposals and I can look at this proposal and I can make an argument for you, if necessary, as to as to a justification under the law as to why this thing needs to be kicked out or should be kicked out and not considered for the award. Conversely, I can also look at this proposal and this request for proposals that the agency put out and make a justification as to why it can remain in, in, in the event that somebody, an, a vendor that doesn't get it, um, decides to protest it. And it took, a, it, took a mo- it took a minute, but eventually through, you know, building up a trust factor which is something that, that I had to do 15 years ago with McAllister's, you know, these people that I was meeting and I, they knew I was going to be in and out in two weeks, but I had to build a rapport with them so that for those two weeks, we would work well together from management down to 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 dishwasher at at the restaurant by building this trust factor with the, um, the agency employees that I deal with, you know, the managing the people, uh, you know, We've now have a, a, an understanding amongst my program offices where when, when I when they bring a question to me about something, whether it be a question about vendors who want to sell us widgets, or million dollar assessment con, multi million dollar assessment contracts, or um, educator misconduct matters, which I which I assist with, um, a, a, and whatever whatever it may be, over over a, over the course of time my interactions through 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 those interactions through working with them they have they now understand that hey when you know dave's going to give us options and he and he's going to explain to us why these options can work regardless of which way we decide to go and now that's not to say that that i always give options sometimes i say no that's just not the law and you can't do that uh, but more often than not, I try to find those options. But again, this go, the question was about managing, uh, managing people and interactions with people. And it was their, their original, their, you know, they, they were used to a one way. I came in with a different way. And over time, a relationship was built to where now we all understand one another they understand my approach, I understand their approach, I understand why they're coming to me with these questions and and we work together. And this goes back to what we talked about earlier, the team's aspect of of the professional, you know, community of unless you're just a sole proprietor making donuts or something, you you've got to work you've got to work with, with other people and and sometimes you may not agree on a on a on a direction. Um, and trust me, that happens all the time. I butt I butthead with, my, with my, my, my client all the time about what I believe is the proper uh, interpretation of a statute or proper interpretation of a regulation. They may And they might have a different opinion. Um, but then we work together to, you know, to, to find some common ground, usually, so they can get my blessing. Um, not that my blessing is, it, it really matters, but <laughs> but I think it comes down to that it's it's you know again but I was but I had to change too that's the the other aspect of that is I had to adapt to the way they did they do things here in the at the age you know in the agency world whereas I was used to making every decision on a case these were my decisions like if I wanted to go to trial I'd I, I could go to, obviously with the input of my client, but you know that stra- the strategy of, of legal practice is on the attorney. Um, the final say of what happens is of course is the client's decision, but once the client tells you you're going to, I want to go to trial, you say, okay, well back up, I'm going to run this, this rodeo is mine now. Whereas in my practice on the, in the as a public attorney, as a public agency attorney, I don't get that kind of latitude. All I can really say is, hey, look, here's what you need to do. Here's how the law works. Here, this is what you can do under the law. Decision's yours, though. Um, and that's I end a lot of emails to my client with your discretion. You know, here's here's my legal analysis. Here is what I would recommend you do, but I'm not telling you to do it. And that was a big change for me. Because again, in my practice, a lot of – I was given and, – and, and the reality is in my private legal practice, I had a lot of clients, uh, especially my corporate clients at that time, had, had given me carte blanche determination on how uh, – uh, even, even settlement authority and things of that nature to where I didn't have to go to them. If, 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 if it met a certain certain threshold, I was good to go. Uh, whereas in this realm, I don't have any of that. So I had to, I had to adapt as well. So they had to adapt to me. I had to adapt to them. And, and again, I think the common thread, the common theme that, and this was, uh, as, as you mentioned, this is an organic conversation and this has grown organically is the common theme today from me has been interactions allowing for adaptability amongst your peer groups.
0: And and when you mentioned that, realizing the change, I immediately go back to my youth, right? And so I I would go to this place called the Catholic Charismatic Center in Houston with Father Richard Pollison, and um, he would allow a couple of deacons to talk, and there was Deacon Pete, sort of a cowboy, and he'd have the same sort of homily message, and then there was a guy, Deacon Don, uh, he'd have the same homily message every year, and it was sort of annoying, but I now realize, especially as as a teacher that the importance of that reinforcement of points where yes it was repetitive annually and i did wonder as a youth really do these old people not have any other stories (laughs) but i i did start (laughs) to listen to um to it and realize that now these lessons are imparted where deacon don's message was always about something with his family and um how he kept praying for god to change other people and finally when he prayed for god to change himself he started to notice changes, right? So that's the one factor in all these team interactions that you control, as you alluded to, where you recognize that you also had to do adapt. And so even though you were the attorney, the subject matter expert, the final signatory, and essentially any this, you know decision maker within the organization or, or sort of subordinate function to that legal decision that chose to move forward was exposing themselves to independent risk, right? Unilaterally saying, we are going out without the advice of counsel, um, which then exposes them and, and put potentially their employment uh, to risk. Um, you then realized, hey, maybe again on one level, initially you realized that maybe they just hadn't interacted with someone like you before, right? And you, they didn't, they weren't used to a collaborative partner, um, somebody who was actually giving them points to enable um, that sort of independent decision making. And I have encountered that in government too, where people are so used to sort of a dictatorial or, or top-down or authoritarian management that they're paranoid when you come in and say, I just want you to do your job well and I'm gonna provide my subject matter expertise. We're paid by the same state dollars. And so uh, if you wanna proceed with this, I'll try to find a way for you to legally, ethically and effectively uh, you know, achieve your optimal outcomes within this methodology, but recognize these potential pitfalls. I'm not here to be your parent they, they freak out, right? They have no mm. idea what to do with this information. And so, yeah. I mean, you, you've highlighted that. And and again, this reinforcement of, yes, sort of the introspective need to evaluate your skills and knowledge and abilities to adapt to your environment, but also to assess the out, outside environment and say, what do I need to do this, right? And accessing tools, particularly networking and relationships to adapt, to be nimble at least and in, in adapting your skills level and your, in your um, even your mentality to the culture in which you're going to be placed. And then finally, just that idea that no matter what the project is, whether you're buying widgets or making sandwiches, there are going to be people, there are going to be personalities, there's going to be an institutional culture, even in new organization seemingly, uh, where there's an, a, a sort of give and take among the individuals. So even when you're managing projects, you're still having to manage people, particularly oh, definitely, definitely. yourself.
1: Yes, you, you manage yourself and you manage it. Well, every project has the human element to it. When, you know, we are, for example, discussing the, the to use the example where you've been using it, we're discussing which widget proposal, you know, there's evaluations. There's people that look at those things, bringing their own personal experiences and, and, and their own opinions about what, what makes a good widget proposal versus what makes a bad widget proposal and, and, and managing those individuals to say, look, you know, here's the criteria I need you to follow. I need you to not worry about your, uh, your personal opinion. And, and that's why, as you know, most of those type of valuations are blind um, so that, that biases can be held out. But that is another aspect of managing uh, people and their expectations and, 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 for lack of a better way of putting it, massaging them in a way to get them toward a common goal and to make, to make the, the most informed decision that they can without, in my, in my world, without, without breaking the law. So right.
0: um, I like that term but, massage though, because many times I'll, when I'm hosting interviews, of course, you know, I've, we've, been, we've been trying to coordinate for a couple of weeks to do this recording in part because I've been chairing a search committee uh, for a director at the university. And you realize when you ask people when they about their management experience, most people can only think about the top-down or, or direct report relationship. And they don't think about the fact that they've been managing people at a lateral level or uh, even a, a sort of managing up level their entire careers, right? You want this time oh. off and you know your boss doesn't want to give it to you. How do you manage your boss? How do you massage your boss to get the time off that you feel that you need?
1: No, no doubt about it. And then, yeah, I, I'm, I'm blessed now in my, my role to be with, you know, an employer, direct supervisors that, that I don't have to massage as much, but, you know, in my, in previous roles, I, I you know, I needed that ability to, um, to make, you know, make that argument. And, and that's all, that's all making an argument for yourself is, is managing other people, setting up, your expectations with their expectations, finding a common ground, but and you, but people don't even realize that's what you're doing there. You're managing. You're, you're you may not be the boss, but you're managing when you are having those sort of discussions with your, again, like like you said, with your lateral uh, lateral coworkers, people below you or people above you. You're that's always a form of management. It's just not the management. That we think that when we hear that term management, we think the boss, but that's not what apparently, you know, you're teaching here is, you know, that whenever we are in, inter- and again, we go back to that term interactions. Whenever we're interacting with other people, we're, we're management, managing one another in those interactions because you're managing yourself because, again, you don't want to do something that might necessarily offend another individual, but you're also managing them to bring, you know, in when you're having a discourse, bringing them maybe to your point of view or at least managing them in a a sense so they can understand your point of view, maybe not agree with your point of view, but understand your point of view. And, And that's the same as if you're, like you just mentioned, if you're asking for time off or if you're asking somebody to go on a lunch meeting with you, or uh you know some some law school friend of yours decides to drag you into his podcast you know it could happen <laughs> abruptly <laughs> you know you had to, you had to manage me to get me here so
0: right and and i think some of these these skills end up being universal and of course you know there's the nim standard for the number of maximum number of people you can effectively manage but i also think it's important to recognize how Many of the things that we've broken down in Eng- the English language, you know, back in the day, French was the language of diplomacy. German was the language of engineering. Um, but now we've realized that English really can, can handle everything, right? And so we've got these nuanced phrases where instead of having to do combination words like Germans with their unterseeboats or um, come up with these delicate terms like with, with French, where we can look and say, hey, English has these subsets, these nuances, these these very deep dive um, elements, but there's still broader categories of communication, of advocacy, of interpersonal relationships, of mutual respect, or whatever whatever categories you want to have. Where maybe there are five or six categories of success that people should emphasize, including being adaptable. Mm-hmm. But anyway, well, I, I've I've taken quite a bit of your time, so I'm. Thank pleasure. you. Thankful for that. I, I hope my uh, goddaughter doesn't beat you up for uh, entertaining me instead of entertaining her. Um, and I, I did. Get oh, the, you, uh, you, just, you,
1: you just let the uh, you just let the, the cat out of the bag there. Dietrich is not only my friend, but he's also my daughter's godfather.
0: So,
1: A <laughs> lot, lot of lot of nepotism in this version of the podcast.
0: Absolutely. And people know relationships matter. Right. So now, we're, now, we're just,
1: now, now, now all your students can understand, like, why was he talking to this idiot?
0: <laughs> <laughs> they'll, know, they'll know relationships matter, and uh, we definitely appreciate your time. We may do a follow-up uh, in, in the near future just to talk in, in more depth about some of these points, but I do appreciate your time, counselor, okay. and uh, I appreciate uh, you, you staying in touch, you offering your time, talent, and expertise to our, our students and some of these other listeners. And I hope that you have a great week.
1: Well, I appreciate that. I definitely gave you my time. I'm not sure about the talent and expertise part of that, but I will, I will, take, the, uh, I will take the compliments uh, at face value. And uh, as always, it, it's always enjoyable to talk to my old friend, Dietrich, and uh, any, any sort of knowledge I can impart, whether, whether it's uh, about how to make a sandwich or how to tell somebody how to give you time off, I'm, I'm always up for it.
0: More bacon. Thank you. Thank you, More Catholic. More
1: bacon. <laughs> Thank you, Dietrich. Have a good one.